Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. The autumn season has finally fallen upon us. It's time to enjoy football, warm apple cider, and everything pumpkin-flavored. Welcome to this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. The value of all U.S. exports has grown at an average annual rate of 6% since 2002 and reached a record high of $1.4 trillion in fiscal year 2021. The USDA says while the bulk of U.S. exports consists of industrial supplies and capital goods, agriculture's share of total U.S. exports has steadily increased. Between fiscal years 2002 and 2021, the value of agricultural exports rose by an average of 11% every year, exceeding the overall rate of increase for the rest of American exports. In 2021, ag producers accounted for 12% of the total value, up 9% in 2002. Even as total U.S. exports dropped 12% when COVID-19 began in fiscal year 2020, ag exports stayed steady because of surging shipments of soybeans, corn, and pork to China. In 2021, total U.S. exports rebounded by 14% as global demand recovered and trade restrictions relaxed. In other news, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association expressed disappointment Tuesday over an executive order announced the previous week. The White House last week released the Executive Order on Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Innovation for a Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. NCBA President Don Schievelbein said, Unfortunately, we are extremely disappointed that this executive order also addresses fake meat production under the guise of food security. He added, Supporting cell-cultured fake meat products is the wrong approach, and the administration should remain focused on supporting America's farmers and ranchers. The NCBA encourages the administration to support the biotechnology innovations already occurring in the cattle industry. According to the organization, technology like gene editing is crucial to improving cattle health and well-being, while also helping the U.S. cattle industry demonstrate climate neutrality by 2040. NCBA says cattle producers play an important role in ensuring food security and has long fought for policies that help producers remain in business while raising the highest quality beef in the world. And finally, the National Pork Board received three grants totaling $155 million as part of the USDA Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities funding. The three grants are part of the $2.8 billion awarded to 70 selected projects in the first round of funding for the program. The first grant, valued at $20 million, will incentivize soil health and manure management practice adoption and support on-farm sustainability reports for pork operations. The second grant, totaling $95 million, will support a program to advance the adoption of cover crops and conservation tillage in 20 states. And the third grant, worth $40 million, will support testing and evaluating climate-smart data in all segments of agriculture in ways that add increased value and support to producers. And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with this faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. Well, the pumpkins from the garden are now on the front porch, a sure sign that the garden is done producing its crop. We've had a wonderful garden this year, an abundance, especially with what I'll call the vine crops, cucumbers, tomatoes, sort of a vine, I think, zucchini squash, acorn and summer squash, oh, 
and did I mention cucumbers? Now all of those vines have pretty much withered, although there are still a flower or two. But now comes the time to gather up all those dead and dying vines, till the dirt, and let the garden rest. And through the winter, we'll enjoy the yield of the garden. Pickles, zucchini relish, frozen squash, stewed tomatoes. Oh, and did I say pickles. Thinking back to the spring, we planted seeds carefully in rows and hills, in good soil, and then spent a lot of time taking care of those seeds and growing plants, mostly pulling weeds, but occasionally offered some water when needed and a little fertilizer. Point is, in order to get those vines to produce, an investment of time and some sweat equity was involved. And then at harvest, my awesome wife invested more time cleaning and boiling jars, slicing and dicing and putting ingredients together to produce a wall full of beautiful jars filled with the results of her labor. The point here is, one can have a beautiful garden that bears fruit, but there's a lot more to the process to put that produce on the table for others to enjoy. If you've listened to me in the past, this is a segue point, linking vines that produce fruit and our own lives. To me, instead of the proverbial family tree, I think it's reasonable to portray our lives as vines that produce fruit. Like the vine, we strive to grow and in that process leave behind fruit that we hope will carry on our legacy, with our genetics as part of the next generation. We're also told in John that there is a much needed ingredient in our vine to produce fruit one that I want to leave behind as part of my legacy, and I hope that you do too. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, much fruit will be produced. But apart from me, we can do nothing. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Come be a part of the Mecham Gone Farming Experience. We have a vintage tractor and truck auction this month that will be the greatest spectacle of vintage tractors in decades. It's the George and June Shaft Tractor and Truck Auction, September 30th and October 1st in Frankfort, Illinois. Vintage tractors, trucks, toys, dolls, signs, whether you're selling or buying or just taking a look, this is one you don't want to miss. Go to Mecham.com for more details and to register to bid. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Well, we're talking right now with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag for our monthly chat. Secretary, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us today. Hey, always great to talk. So, had a busy week so far this week. Uh, first of all, let's talk about, we had that Taiwan delegation here to make some ag purchases and make some purchase agreements. They've been going all over the country. Iowa was one of those natural stops for them. Talk about that event. You bet. You know, again, this is so important to us. Trade matters to Iowa. Uh, we're second in the nation in terms of the value of the food and ag products that we export. And so uh, anytime that you can sign letters of intent or letters, 
you know, that, that folks are intending to buy significant amounts of corn and soybeans. We're talking again, over $2 billion worth of soybean, $600 million worth of corn. Uh, that totals up, that dollars up. And so it's really important that we continue to see and be active in that space of uh, really promoting international markets for uh, Iowa farmers as well. Well, and also it's the fact that they are renewing, you know, their efforts, but they've also been a growing partner. I mean, what, yes. they're 12th, I believe, uh, for size trading partner with us? That's right. So they're number 12 in terms of an export destination for the state of Iowa. You know, their corn purchases are right about uh, on par with where they've historically been, but there was a an uptick in that soybean number. And, and, and again, you know, we have learned over the last couple of years that we we really don't want to have to have all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to export markets. What we would much rather have is many uh, small and growing markets that total up uh, together and that that's a good strategy. And so Taiwan's a great example of a good customer, but one that we love seeing this trajectory of growth. And, and of course, it reminds us that there's all kinds of opportunity, especially across Southeast Asia. Uh, for the things that we produce. Again, whether it's the corn and soybeans that we grow or also a great uh, protein export as well. So again, this is the blocking and tackling of of trade that we need to do. And Iowa has been very aggressive in this over the years. Uh, You start to knit together many of these markets and uh, it, it starts to matter. One thing I found interesting, and I think you talk about, talked about it during the event uh, earlier this week, was the fact that they're obviously showing that they're not just after quantity, but they're also after quality. Right. And, and of course, that's the other value proposition that we bring to this is we bring something that is consistent. We can be a consistent supplier. You know, again, uh, unfortunately, think about the disruption that we've seen around the world with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, you know, political uh, uncertainty at times in South America. The United States is a consistent quality producer. When you do business with us, you know what you're going to get. And so uh, that's something that we always want to stress. And of course, we want to, you know, we talk very candidly about the fact that, hey, in the, in, the, in the state of Iowa, we've got some weather challenges. We had some weather challenges last year, and we still set records in terms of corn yields. And so it's, it also underscores that we've got to have access to technology to remain productive and that that's a good thing for us, but also a good thing for them because they need us to be a consistent quality supplier. So we try to make that point. We can get you what you need, but you're going to like what you get as well. And the other point that I made, and it's you know one that everybody's thinking about, is what about sustainability? So we're not just producing at all costs here in the state of Iowa. We're producing more, but we're also having a lighter touch uh, on our natural resources as well. All right. And switching gears here just a little bit. Uh, something we talked about this spring. I was hoping we wouldn't have to talk about it this fall, but that's uh, HPAI. Now, we've been lucky so far this fall, but our neighbors to the north, my homeland, they are seeing it pop up again. Uh, Talk about being prepared in case we see a second round this year of bird flu. Boy, we sure hoped that we weren't going to be talking about this this fall. And if you go back to 2015, when we last had HiPath, Uh, As the birds migrated north, they carried it with them and we saw the outbreak in the spring. And then as they came south in the in the fall and into the winter, there was no subsequent uh, outbreak. Unfortunately, it appears that this virus is hanging around in that wild bird population. Once again, you're seeing some both commercial and backyard flocks. Uh, Minnesota is being pretty, pretty hard hit right now, which, again, it's somewhat logical. They're a large turkey producer. There's a lot of sites, a lot of birds. We just hate to see that for them 
and what they're going through and their producers. But we're also seeing it then in Ohio and Indiana and uh, South Dakota and other places around us. So unfortunately, what it's telling us is as those birds are migrating south again, they're carrying it with them. So now is a time of, of increased vigilance again on the part of our producers. We are taking steps to still, we're still looking back at the experience earlier this year and trying to assess if there's things that we can do better, things that we need to learn, be ready to go again this fall. So that's certainly our operational footing is that we're ready to go. Uh, we sure hope we don't have to. Uh, and producers are really working hard right now to elevate that biosecurity. And for one thing, though, and I mean, we talked about this towards the end of the outbreak this spring. I mean, it was such a night and day difference compared to what it was in 2015. I mean, we knew what to do. We had learned those lessons, unfortunately, the hard way those years ago. But we were able to basically kind of keep things to a minimal when you're looking at the fact of the impact we saw in our industry. You know, that's right. And I'm proud of that fact. And, and there's really two things, again, that, that drove that. I I think one, it is a testament to the way that producers responded. They learned a lot of lessons about improving biosecurity on their farms. They've done the hard work. You've got to do that, though, every single day. And, and that's hard on them. And, and so uh, I, I just commend our producers because we saw a lot of lateral movement, a lot of farm to farm movement in 2015. We did not see that this time around. And uh, I, that's a testament to them. It's also the response was better, was faster. Uh, we did a more effective job of finding those sites early, containing the virus on those sites, and then uh, disposing of that of that virus on site. And uh, that again is a testament to our team here at the Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship, the state veterinarian and his team, but also our great partners with USDA. We learned a lot. We did a better job, but we will always try to work to do even better because inevitably you find things that uh, you know gaps that we had or or uh, capacity issues that we had. But we're very fortunate in the state of Iowa. We've got a huge USDA facility up in Ames. We've got an Iowa State University vet diagnostic lab that's right there, ready to go. We've got a lot of assets uh, that we can use when, when we're in a crisis situation. Now, moving on to the bigger topic as we're looking at late September, and that's obviously the harvest. We know our, some combines are already moving. We know there's been silage chopped in some of the harder hit areas by the drought. But, you know, we also saw a few tours come through and say maybe things may not be as bad as we thought. You know, a testament to both the hybrids and the fact that maybe because we got in a little later, yeah. we may have bought ourselves some time. Boy, you're going to have just a, a little bit of everything across the state, it seems like. Uh, we've certainly got parts of the state that have been impacted by drought, you know, whether it's the the, the tonnage coming off in terms of silage. Uh, certainly, we think yields will be affected, especially in western Iowa, you know, Sioux City North. <clears throat> and then of late, uh, southern Iowa, especially southeast Iowa, has been uh, hard hit and, and maybe the, the driest part of the state. So pastures, grass, uh, but also their crops have been impacted. However, I think as you look across the state of Iowa, again, we're going to be, uh, I'm, I'm expecting good yields, honestly, generally. We're going to have pockets that are impacted, but I think we're going to see stronger yields than maybe folks expected. And that's just coming from what I'm hearing from people as they get out. And uh, on that front, we've still got some places that are green or, or just turning and because they had some late rains and that's good news. Uh, so I think it's going to be a rolling start to harvest. You're going to have people kind of getting out where they can. Uh, but generally starting to hear folks really getting interested in getting out and getting going. And then again, we're seeing kind of a, all over the place in terms of yield results. But I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about our the whole picture across the state of Iowa this year. 
you know, I have to commend you. You're obviously a farmer first because, you know, you said you're hearing things, but you won't say exact numbers, and no farmer <laughs> ever will say exact numbers. I've always said it's easier to get Chinese nuclear secrets than it is to get a yield estimate from a farmer. Well, right. That is right up until you're rolling in the field and you see that yield monitor pop up, and boy, you're going to take a picture of that real quick, and you might send that to somebody. But no, you're right. And actually, it's been that way with moisture, too. I've been kind of kidding throughout that uh, folks in Northeast Iowa in particular ask, how are things looking? They'll say, fine, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Not to, they don't want to jinx it, you know, uh, but, but right. We'll, uh, I'll get little pieces here and there of how folks are, are looking. But first and foremost, folks, please stay safe out there, um, both in the field, but also anybody working around our farmers, seeing them on roads, they're working long hours and uh, just keep that safety in mind. That's exactly a good point. I've said this many times, you know, even pace yourself. I mean, always, there's always yes. that hurry. You want to hurry up and get yes. done. But, you know, I think family would rather have you home than that extra thousand bushels tonight. It'll be there tomorrow. That's so true. And I just think that that's, that's something we all have to think about. We get going. We, uh, we're looking at the weather forecast. We're looking at the calendar. All those things, all those pressures are very real. Uh, but you've got to keep safety top of mind. And, and it's, and, you know, it, it takes just one slip or just one minute where you aren't thinking about that, where things tragically can happen. So uh, that's, that's the way I ask. But then again, I, I say too, that's on the farm, but boy, uh, people uh, are going to encounter lots of farm equipment on roads. And uh, I always say, remember, they can't always see you as well as you can see them. So just always keep that in mind. Yep. Very true. Well, secretary, I thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us again this month. Well, it's always good to talk, and uh, I hope next by next month we'll have a little better read on how those yields are looking. But, uh, again, it's, it's a great time of year to be getting out and, and finally get a chance to see what's actually out there. That, again, was Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag here on Weekend Ag Matters. Mark Magnuson will be in next to wrap things up. September means that harvest is about to begin in Iowa. The 2022 growing season has provided a lot of challenges with heat and drought for many parts of the state. But as always, there are excellent crops across Iowa that are ready to be harvested. Now we must stress that it is very important to exercise safety during this essential part of a producer's year. Take the time to follow all safety instructions while harvesting so that you can take pride in the results of this year's hard work. Have a safe harvest from all of us at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Joined now by Kevin Milliner with Zoetis. He is a strategic account manager in the genetics division. What is your day-to-day -day role in the Zoetis operation? My day-to-day -day role to account manager is to work with producers on uh, using genomic tests to help them reach whatever goals that they have in mind for their herd. And that's across seed stock as well as uh, commercial cow-calf operations. And Kevin, what trends right now are you seeing that are impacting the beef industry? Well, obviously the, the cost of everything has got to be, I think, first and foremost on people's minds. The cost of land, feed costs are out of sight, fuel costs are unbelievably high, fertilizer costs are out of sight. 
you know, those are things that we can't control, but yet it certainly plays into um, our operations and our decisions that we make. You know, the adage is, is you worry about the things you can control and try not to worry about the things you can't. But that's it's really difficult because those, those are certainly some big ones that uh, directly impact profitability and, and uh, long-term sustainability um, within each of these operations. Kevin, I do know, like you said, input costs are extremely high almost across the board, but there are ways that producers can at least try and, I guess, navigate those costs by maybe changing up things they're doing on their operation. What are some of those ways that they can maybe tweak things and try to get around some of those high, high input costs? Yeah, exactly. I think I think first and foremost, I think we make we need to make sure that we have the very best animals that we can on our on our farms and ranches. And the best meaning those that are going to be as profitable as they possibly can be. We don't. There's not enough margin left in the cattle industry to to have one that's just so-so. We have to have the very best ones that we can on our operations. And I think that's really where genomics really plays a big role in it. it gives us a chance, if you will, to look under the hood of an animal to see what kind of horsepower is actually setting there. When you talk about genetic testing, what is that very first step? What does a producer do that wants to get involved with this and say, yeah, I want to optimize my performance on my operation? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to get a sample from each of the animals that, that they want to test. The best way to do that is with uh, something called a tissue sampling unit, or the acronym is, is TSU. It's a little plastic vial about an inch and a half long got some liquid in it. You put it goes into a special applicator, punches a hole through the ear, much like you would with an ear tag, and it sticks that little piece of that ear tissue in that little tube and then puts a cap on it and seals it. Samples can be taken at any time from birth until um, there's a stake on the plate because DNA doesn't change. It, it, it is what it is at birth all the way through to uh, somebody's plate. So we can get samples any time on those animals. And so really that's, that's step one. Um, best way to do that would be to get a hold of their local zoetis rep or somebody within those within Zoetis to number one get those TSUs ordered for you to educate work with you to figure out which test would be the most applicable for your operation help you fill out the order form um, get that stuff sent off and then probably more the most important step is when the results come back um, talk to you work with each individual producer to help develop to one help them understand what the results mean and number two develop some kind of a plan that they can implement on their farm or ranch um, to be able to move their herd down the track of uh, genetic progress. So Kevin, just to bring it kind of into layman's terms, what I'm kind of hearing is that with an animal, you know, going into it that not every animal is the same and those genetics are going to ultimately decide how big the animal can get, how much feed it can take and those types of things. Does this genetic testing then give you a little bit of a roadmap to see what you can do from your end to make that animal the best animal it can be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the logical way that most people ap- approach results on their animals is, is so there's there's indexes. These are bioeconomic indexes. Big fancy word to mean that not all traits are tra- created equal, but the traits are actually weighted in those indexes on how they contribute to profitability. So using those indexes to make keep call decisions um, is probably the, the most logical first step when they get their results back. To your point, they all may look like peas in the pod, but genetically they are not equal most of the time. And so again, pick out those indexes, use those indexes to pick out those ones that you want to keep, and then take that information and look at the individual traits on those animals that you've decided to keep. Look at their strengths and weaknesses and either go to your existing bull battery or may give you a clue on, on a type of bull that you need to buy by looking at their strengths 
strengths and weaknesses. We want to get something that's going to lift up whatever weaknesses may be in those heifers and then also to accentuate whatever strengths are inherently in those in those females. And so that's kind of a, a roadmap on, on how best to go about using that. And what do you see as far as the returns from producers you talk to that have tried genetic testing and they've gotten this involved in their operation? I'll give you a, a prime example of one that we worked with for quite a while. So we worked with this operation for 12 years. They started um, genetic testing back in 2010. 800 cow, primarily Angus commercial cows, retains ownership on all the calves through the feed yard to the packing plan. And when he first started, he was getting about 12% of his, his calves to grade prime, which is nothing, certainly nothing that's needs that then and certainly not now. But fast forward to 2021, the steers that he finished went 80% prime. And so the natural reaction most people have is, well, he's just chasing marbling. That's not true. He raises every replacement heifer that he has on his ranch. And to quote him, he said, that is the fact factory. I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize the, the factory. I want the very best female in this herd that I can possibly create. And so I had him go back and look at the average scores by calf crop for those, for those 10 years. And um, interestingly enough, every trait got better, even ones he wasn't selecting for. Every trait got better with the exception of two. Two that he didn't want to get better, and that's milk and mature size. He lives in a part of the world that gets about 18 inches of moisture a year. So obviously he doesn't want a cow that's going to be big and don't want one that wants to that milks a lot because you're going to have to feed them more to be able to, for them to be able to con, to keep their body condition to to rebreed the next year. And so I thought it was interesting that all traits got better. And so he's certainly not selecting just for marbling. Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know about when it comes to genetic testing and why it can help their operation? Again, I think the best analogy is it, it gives us a chance to look under the hood to see what kind of horsepower is 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 sitting there. And I would encourage anybody who has any interest at all to get a hold of their local Zoetis rep, or they can go to the Inherit website. It's Inherit Progress, I-N-H-E-R-I-T, the word progress, no spaces, no underscores, dot com. He's Kevin Milliner with Zoetis. Kevin, thank you so much for the time and have a great rest of your day. I do appreciate it and you as well. That brings us to the end of this edition of Weekend Ag Matters. Thanks for tuning in. You can find replays of this week's show and all of our Weekend Ag Matters episodes under the podcast tab at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Riley Smith, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for listening to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network.